Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. All right. Hey, All right. This is exciting. I feel like we're at the end of a narrative arc. And so then I think this is episode six, if I haven't lost count, which I might have. Um, so the, the topic I wanted to focus on today is bootstrapping empathy. So we've kind of agreed, I think at least in broad details, on what, how we wish the world worked, right? Mm-hmm. So we've talked about status games and positive sum economics and, um, you know, building information architectures to support all of that. Values, the, the values that individuals values. have. Yeah. Individuals yeah. and institutions need to embody certain values. And so the hard part is getting there. And in particular, the hardest part is actually starting. And the the reason pro-social behavior is valuable is because, you know, when people act in pro-social ways, they vastly outcompete all the alternatives. Uh, the problem is that if you're the only person acting pro-socially, the word for that is a sucker, right? If you... Uh, because then everyone else gets to be a free rider on it. And that is, among other things, not sustainable. And the hard part is creating a sense of community and identity and the appropriate level of trust that people are willing to actually make those pro-social sacrifices. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And the, um, and the, the, this is especially challenging because what you and I are proposing is really a revolution, right? It is a dramatic shift of power away from those who currently hold power to distribute it more uh, in a more decentralized and democratic fashion throughout the population. Yeah. And that's a word we haven't really used much before. Uh, kind of not very much in vogue these days. It was much more popular in say the 60s and 70s, uh, but kind of got a bad, uh, taste after, uh, I don't know, I'm actually sure what, but the, um, and, you know, basically what we are proposing, if we succeed, is pretty much, maybe not destroy, but certainly undermine or radically reform pretty much all existing power structures, right? Mm-hmm. Right, which means that it's probably safe to say hardly anybody who is currently benefiting from those power structures is going to be eager to help us. Uh, Yeah, correct. Right. Uh, So uh, I was thinking about this. There's basically four, and then the question is sort of like, what concrete things can we do to bring this world about? Um, And there seems to be four paths people take towards revolution. Um, I was thinking about this. There's um, I, going with the acronym PARC, P-A-R-C, so you could reverse it if you wanted to, uh, which is politics, art, religion, and commerce. Right, so political revolutions are what we're most familiar with, uh, Lenin in Russia, and um, more or less the, and certainly the American Revolution, where the primary mechanism was political, people gathering together in committees of correspondence 
and, and eventually in a Continental Congress and so forth. Um, so that's certainly the most well-known form of a revolution. The, um, the, the downside of that is twofold. One, I'm, I have a hard time thinking of a political revolution that was not accompanied by massive bloodshed. Um, uh, and so even like Lincoln's political revolution around slavery was perfectly bloody. Uh, so, and then frankly, I don't think either of us is really well suited to the political route of, you know, building coalitions and running for office and uh, things like that. So I'll uh, put a, uh, a defer mark on that route for the, for the time being. Um, I mean, at some point there will be a political aspect to this, but probably much later down the road. So the second route to revolution is art. So there's a way you can create uh, radical shifts in values through art and artistry, um, creating, uh, painting a picture of the world in a way that captures people's imagination. Um, and that's often a very powerful technique. Uh, there's a um, story of a, of a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was later made famous by the musical uh, The King and I, which um, uh, written by Lady uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and reportedly Abraham Lincoln, when he met her, said, uh, oh, so you're the little woman who started this big war because it opened people's eyes and created this massive uh, sense of empathy for slaves in a way that uh, people in the North hadn't really experienced on a large scale before. And, you know, media and art of various communications, I mean, in our field, um, you know, uh, artistic uh, endeavors like, um, um, like the, the term cyberspace, which I think was from the book uh, Neuromancer, um, or Star Trek, right? These works of art, they maybe not created a political revolution, but they created a, a, a deep sense of a shared imagination where people suddenly were drawn to a new set of ideals, role models, and values that they had not previously had. Does that make sense? So that's a kind of revolution. Ernest, you still there? Did I lose you? Am I talking to myself again? Wait, wait. Uh, yep, I heard you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Sorry about that. Okay. Yes, uh, I was uh, saying that uh, people like, um, I don't know, Jeff Bezos, he says that he's a big uh, tricky. So, um, yeah, people get inspired by you know, works like Star Trek and, you know, their minds get um, open to the possibilities of, um, you know, living Earth and, you know, exploring the solar system and the universe. So, yeah, I agree that art. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. And even, uh, I use the word term uh, art very broadly. So, for example, uh, I think Doug Engelbart. Uh, Project Xanadu, which introduced, you know, hyperlinks and uh, the mouse and the graphical user interface, 
it was never really successful as a technology or as a company, but as a work of performance art, uh, it was extraordinarily successful and that it inspired a, a generation and really shaped people who build the tools that we use today. So I think that's the route that's accessible. It's uh, quite hard and it's also the, uh, tends to by definition sort of be the least self-funding in that uh, being a lonely artist. But in some ways it's almost the default route. Like if you can't do anything else, uh, at least you can create art, which is as you know, I write science fiction stories to try to imagine possible futures, uh, mostly for my, my own sake, just to try to wrap my head around things. Mm. But I'm always hoping that one of these things might take off and actually uh, gain some traction. But anyway, so that's the second one, that's the A. The third route, uh, which has uh, not been used so much in recent centuries, uh, but was quite a big deal in the past, was religious revolutions. Uh, I was just reading like the first real big uh, change in human societies is what was called the Axial Age around somewhere around 1000 BC, give or take a few hundred years, which is before that you had these what they would call despotic god kings, right? Like the Pharaoh of Egypt being the best known example, which were pretty much totalitarian states, incredibly violent, incredibly oppressive. And then around that same time frame, you had uh, Buddha, Zoroaster, and, and Confucius. And they all kind of said, you know, hey, uh, uh, you know, it's not enough to just have power. You actually have to use it for good. And there was a shift in the cultures and the economics and even the military technology of the time that made people receptive to that message. And I guess actually probably the best example, I don't know how well he's known in the West here, is a uh, Emperor Ashoka of India who converted to Buddhism and you know, radically altered the character of governance. And by all accounts, from everything we can see, he was actually a really gentle, humble man that after he conquered his emperor empire you know, in the usual bloody fashion, like truly converted to Buddhism and tried to live simply and peaceably and promote the welfare of his subjects. Um, certainly, I mean, Western civilization itself was built on the backs of uh, the Catholic Church and the Benedictine monasteries uh, around, you know, 400 or so AD. So anyway, um, that's the religious route. I don't know, uh, you may not, I don't know if you were involved with religious communities in any significant extent, but that's actually primarily the route I have been taking uh, with my sister podcast, uh, The Great Reset. Um, the advantage of, of, of religion, certainly it's already a, there's a long tradition of reform and critique uh, in the religious uh, literature and history. Of course, there's an equally, if not more prominent theme of religion becoming uh, in bed with the powers that be and violently persecuting those who propose anything different. So it is not without its own risks. Um, yeah. But uh, I've been actually very encouraged uh, the, during this whole time of COVID because our existing religious institutions um, are under enormous stress and pretty much preoccupied with their own problems. And the religious membership is actually 
um, I'm telling a friend of mine, more connected to the global world than ever before and less connected to their particular uh, institutions. And so there's an interesting opportunity there, which we can talk about more what I'm doing in that space. Uh, but that's the R in the park. And then the fourth route to a revolution um, is commercial. And probably the best example of this is Henry Ford, who invented the Ford production system and, you know, really uh, not just mass production, but uh, what they call Fordism, which is the idea that um, we are building factories not just to build cars, but to give a better life for workers. And while certainly paternalistic and, you know, had its downside, uh, it really was an extraordinary innovation, which, um, you know, gave enormous wealth and prosperity and freedom and, you know, vastly better living conditions compared to, say, the mining enterprises, uh, that type of corporate, uh, corporate exploitation, which existed there. And so, um, and, you know, you could argue that you know, even at Apple with the smartphone, uh, there is a certain sense of values uh, that are embedded in that revolution, some explicitly, some implicitly. And there's a, um, you know, uh, that's what I've heard of heard is that every platform embodies a set of values. And when people adopt a platform, they implicitly end up adopting and honoring those values, even if they are not conscious of it. So if you can build a, a tool that people use, you can change how people think about certain things. Uh, this is kind of timely right now on uh, July 16th, I think it is. Uh, you've heard of the social network TikTok? Yes. Yeah, and there's a big debate going on now about uh, India just banned TikTok. And there's serious discussion in the US whether TikTok should be banned. And part of the reason is that uh, TikTok is more or less owned by China. And the Chinese government is not uh, at all shy about using its power to try to export its values and influence uh, other countries, which Generally speaking, every every country does this. China is just way more serious about it than most. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, it's a really weird thing that a, you know, uh, a silly uh, little video lip syncing app uh, has already been used to make political statements or suppress political statements and therefore could potentially be used even more so in the future. So it's a, you know, kind of a strange moment we're living in but that's the, but what all of these have in common, right, is they're trying to build a sense of shared feeling where people, um, you know, believe in something together and they put effort into it in a way that then makes them feel like an insider and feel like kinship to those who share those values. And then, because of that, they can organize to do things together. They will contribute resources and engage in pro-social behavior around those ideals. Um, one thing I conspicuously left off the list 
is philosophy. And philosophy, which is kind of what we've been doing for the last few podcasts, is as the best definition I heard is an uncommonly stubborn attempt to think clearly. I think Samuel Johnson came up with that definition. And so it is really important to be able to think clearly about what you want, what is important, how things should work, how they might go wrong, and, and all that. But philosophy by itself is almost by definition thought divorced from action and oftentimes from emotion. And ideas have to kind of dump the chasm from philosophy to one of these other fields before they actually can build empathy and create a revolution. Does that make sense? The building of empathy um, kind of, I don't get that, but I guess you're going to. Okay, well, empathy, in the, in the, in the, let me, sir. Okay, in the sense that people have to actually, to feel part of it, to, to act as part of a community, people have to feel that they are part of something bigger than themselves. Yeah, and we can use different words for that, empathy, worship, allegiance, whatever. But the point thing is, it's it's a, a, um, especially for a revolution, there's a sort of radical transformative aspect to it. You have to redefine your identity as part of something uh, bigger than yourself, different than how you identified it before. And it's, it's that identity shift and identification that is so powerful. Um, but, uh, and that's what it takes to have the sort of united concerted effort, A, to create a revolution, and in our case, certainly more importantly, to sustain the type of systems that uh, we want to build. Yeah, I would say that it's not that, that you would um, change your identity, you know, to uh, become part of a community. I would say that you uh, discover your identity, you know, through the help of uh, whatever you do, uh, philosophy, internal evaluation. So after you discover what you are or, or, you know, who you are, what you want to be, then you look out for communities. Uh, When you adapt to a community that already exists, you know, we get problems like, you know, gangs and things like that. Uh, people that uh, are alone and, and, you know, they're to others, they seek out communities that might, for the most part, we, well, for a lot of uh, situations, you know, people find the wrong community uh, because that's the one that's available to them, for example. But uh, it, you know, I agree that we obviously have to be part of something bigger than ourselves. But I, you know, it's not like you would Okay, so there you'd cut off for a bit. You think that's Connection drops. Yeah. Or, okay. Okay. Um, so, I- yeah, so you can frame it a couple of different ways, but I think the. Uh, Let's just say in order to get significant things done, you have to find your identity as part of a group. And whether you find the identity first and then you seek out the community or whether you find the community and then shift your identity to join, 
is an interesting philosophical question, but it doesn't really matter much because at the end of the day, it, people have to identify with a group and with the aims and values of that group in order to be effective. And since you and I are trying to create something more or less from scratch, people have to see something that they either recognize or choose to identify with, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So given you know those four uh, buckets, have you thought much about what steps, uh, which steps you are most interested in investing in? <laughs> well, uh, I have, um, you know, as part of um, entered into this, uh, uh, you know, fixing humanity's problems, I've, I kind of delve into everything, you know, uh, from health to politics to uh, how we, um, you know, relate to each other uh, through business, um, uh, technology, of course. Uh, uh, information. So I, I, I've been all over the place. So, you know, which one do but, I But I'm not asking like, you where. I'm asking you how. How? Right? Oh. How? Right, the how? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Right. And, and at least starting with those four buckets, so you're welcome to propose others. But if you're actually trying to make a change in the world, my thesis is that you have to kind of choose one of those four paths and really invest on building skills and capabilities and in a sense reputation along one of those paths if you're going to attract other people to join in your vision. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know if, if uh, choosing from before, all four of them are so mired with uh, problems you know political it's like well, we can just just see what what we're going through right now it's just um uh i i think I, we have to start from the from from the point of view of okay um we are human beings and we are a, a one human race how can we survive all these strife that we're going through. I'm going through the religious, uh, yeah, I'm not an expert in that. Um, I don't know, I think it's more like personal, in my view, it's more like, uh, let's start with, you know, help. It, I, I would say, let's start by helping people discover who they are, you know, uh, apart from all the complications of uh, yeah, our political situation, religion, yeah, religion is uh, so so dangerous there. Um, commercial, uh, well, after the individual, after hey, you know what you are, what you are about, then maybe I would say commercial because that's how uh, you know interacting with with people and other entities. Trade, you know, that's how people survive. You know, we, uh, you know, uh, get food, you know, grow our food because that, you know, we have to eat to survive, right? So we find ways to create food, and then yeah, after we are satiated, maybe there are some people that 
uh, are lacking food. So we, you know, we share with them, we trade with them. So I think that, you know, that would be the most practical aspect in your framework. Commercial, I think, would be the most practical aspect to, uh, from which to start, in which to start. Okay. So I think the, uh, so a different word that people can use rather than religious is spiritual, right, in terms Correct. of helping people find themselves. The problem is, is that spiritual works well for a um, internal peace of mind. It does not work well for changing society, right? Because by definition, religion, uh, I think the word uh, has a sense, the same root word as ligament. It's about the connections that bind us together. And if people individually each have deeply pro-social social values, uh, but they do not actually know that other people share those pro-social values, they will not act in pro-social ways, right? It's, the, it's the, the, the coordination problem. Like, you know, if you know that, uh, like, you know, it, that's why totalitarian regimes control the flow of information. Because if everyone knew that 80% of the population, you know, hated the government, and was willing to risk their lives to tear it down, they would march in the streets and it would happen. But if you think you're the only one, then you're gonna keep quiet about it. Because there's no point in you being the guy who's marching in the street and gets cut down if no one else is gonna support you. Uh, my son is watching the Disney musical Newsies, which is very much about that coordination problem. It's like, yeah, I'm willing to go on strike if I know that everybody else is willing to stick it out to the end. Because the worst thing is the strike where you suffer badly for five days and then you fold. Uh, and then you're way, way worse off than you were when you started. And so uh, understanding, so there, there has to be anything. And the other way of looking at it is also what is the thing that, okay, this is the world you want to create. Um, what grind are you willing to go through to make that happen? Right, because you know, every, um, every difficult task has you know, the glorious future at the end that you're hoping for, and there's a really painful grind to get there, which is why most people don't do it, right? Either they see the grind and they, they don't start, or they start the grind, and then they realize that, okay, this is not just posting a few articles on the internet, this is a life's work that could consume everything I have, um, I don't do that. Or uh, the most tragic for me is people who, uh, uh, like one colleague who worked with me for many years uh, before he and I had a falling out, was that he gets, uh, you get focused on one way to accomplish your task and you just obsess over it and you never really build alliances with people. Or So the, the way I phrase it is, in order to succeed, you have to learn how to adapt your vision without compromising it and refine your values without betraying them. Uh, on either side is disaster, right? If you never adapt or refine your vision and values, you will end up as the lone crock pot. Um, 
if you uh, get too good at that, then you end up compromising your vision and betraying your values, and you end up back where you started. And there's this really fine line uh, that you have to walk if you actually want to make effective change in the world. Because it requires enormous self-confidence and enormous humility at the same time. <clears throat> so, yeah. So if you don't have any thoughts, I can at least tell you what I'm doing about it. So uh, I've tried. Okay, go ahead. No, I mean, sorry, if you have some thoughts, feel free to share. And then I can share later. Mm. Uh, well, uh, yeah, before you share, um, I think that it is uh, important, uh, you know, and it's not like I'm an expert in this, but this is the way I feel, that you have to, uh, in, in some sense, like you said, you know, define, okay, what is your, define your vision and, and your values, and but make it so that um, others can you know, get behind that, um, that uh, uh, others after, uh, you know, doing some uh, internal evaluation, that they are strongly, they, they strongly believe in, in those values so that they can join in and give their whole selves to this shared, you know, what, it, what should be a shared vision and shared values. If, if, the, if they don't uh, if they're just curious uh, about your vision, you know they're not gonna invest their whole self into that. I think that for for uh, a revolution, a movement to be successful, uh, yeah, like I said, one person is not gonna make it happen. Uh, it, it takes you know several people, and it also takes time. You can't, you know, you yeah, you can go on strike. To uh, fix uh, injustices that a company is is doing on, the, on its employees, and that might take you know a few weeks, a few months, even a few years. But when it comes to uh, changing, you know how humanity behaves, uh, that takes uh, generations. It's like you know, even though even if you can come up with the great social change idea, it still requires change. Um, in, in a large number of people, and most of those people are very comfortable in the way that things are, even though they may have, there may be unjust. Um, some of them think, oh, oh, well, even though I'm in you know this situation right now, if I work hard, I will get out of it. And a lot of people uh, believe in that really strongly, and they are not going to be swayed. So I think that you know another ingredient is time. You have to let uh, let's say uh, the current generation uh, be, uh, let them know what you're thinking. Let them know that there's a group of people that strongly believe in that, but allow them to know. Oh, I can choose to stay uh, the way I am, or I can maybe try to uh, think about what these uh, people are uh, thinking about. Then the next generation would, you know. Uh, will have more information to join or not join the movement. And as this movement, you know, gets more people to join, more ideas, you know, you, as you say, uh, the vision keeps adapting to the current situation and the movement still 
survives, as people see that, then it will grow and, and, and be strong. Uh, but yeah, uh, one of the things that, you know, that I kind of uh, realize is that, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to see the end of this. You know, it's like uh, uh, people who, uh, scientists who make discoveries and, you know, work hard to uh, realize to do great products, but they never get the chance to create a product. But they believe in that so much that it doesn't matter to them. They just want to start it and know that in the future, people will be beneficiaries of that work. So, uh, yeah, it involves all of that. Vision, values, uh, cohesion, and time. Okay. Yeah, so a couple points on that. One is that that's certainly true. The interesting thing, though, is that um, there's two things. One is that if you want to leave a legacy for others to build upon, you have to do it in a way that others will recognize and value, right? The scientist who builds a great invention, he may not see it commercialized, but he will at least publish it in a paper that his peers read and is an archive so that it becomes part of the discourse, right? That's the big difference between chemistry and alchemy. Uh, alchemy, you know, they guarded their secrets and then maybe they had one successor that they would pass things on to. Um, so uh, that's why you kind of have to choose, I would say, like one of those four traditions, unless you can find another one, where you encode it in a way that people who care about these things can find it and use it, right? Mm -hmm. So whether that's writing papers, whether that's, um, um, you know, um, you know, creating a work of art, whether that is building a community, those are ways to encode the values. Uh, the second point I would make is that there's actually three steps. Uh, one is figuring out the right answer. The second is living it out yourself. And how do you structure your life in a way that you are modeling that truth that you have found? And then the third thing is attracting others to follow it. And a lot of Western civilization is built on the conceit that, oh, if you just figure out the right answer and then you tell people, then they should accept it, which is manifestly untrue on so many levels, except in very narrow circumstances of status and power. <laughs> um, so the, the harder thing is actually finding values, not just that you believe are true, but that you can live out in a way that demonstrates to other people that they believe they are true, right? That's why martyrs are so valuable because they demonstrate that they actually valued these things more than they valued their own lives. Um, and there's other ways of doing it. Renunciation is a sort of milder version of that, like the Buddha who renounced all of his wealth uh, and connections in the pursuit of enlightenment. And, you know, startups have a similar vibe where people, you know, you know, give up their jobs and security in order to try to create something in the world. So that's one way that people signal the value and live it out. You're going to say something? Mm, no. no. Okay. Okay. So the third thing is that you're, uh, I think at the beginning you said, you know, once you have a small group of people demonstrating it, then things can build up in the succeeding generations. The hard part is actually finding the small group that, um, that starts. Uh, have we talked about the first follower effect? 
I don't think so. No, there's a video on YouTube uh, that Derek Sivers uh, riffs on, which is that, you know, when you see one guy at a concert just dancing with a shirt off, he's just a crackpot. But as soon as the second person takes their shirt off and starts dancing with him, he becomes the, he's the first follower, and that turns the person from a crackpot into a leader. Okay. Yeah, and then once that happens, then there's a sense of, okay, this is the thing we are aligned around. It becomes a thing rather than just a guy, something bigger than himself, if you will. Yeah, and so, you know, we've had this dialogue, which is, in a sense, a starting point towards something like that, though it's still not clear what the thing is yet that we'd be asking other people to sign up for. So maybe Mm -hmm. this is a way to tell you what my my parallel efforts in this. So, uh, as I may have mentioned before, I got radicalized by 9-11, and that led me to studying politics, which led me to studying economics, which led me to studying philosophy, which led me to studying theology, which led me to studying psychology, uh, and then back to spirituality. And I've been on this quest, uh, you know, for almost 20 years now. And the, uh, I think I've tried all of these avenues at different times, right? I tried the political route when I lived in Sacramento for three years. And I basically learned that uh, given where I was starting from, it would be really, really hard to climb that ladder to a position of influence. Because all the people who cared about the things I cared about already had their own institutions and strategies that they were pursuing. Mm-hmm. And therefore they weren't really eager to, you know, throw them out in favor of something different. Um, so I've tried the art route, various kinds, you know, writing little stories and manifestos and things. And I'm glad I did that because the art is now out there in the world on the internet. And there's always mm-hmm. a chance that someone will see it. Like every now and then I'll get an email from somebody who says, Oh, I read your article here. In fact, I had two random guys in the UK who read a blog post of mine and contacted me independently. Turns out they both knew each other. And I had some fascinating conversations with them. Um, And so you can attract, you know, uh, so I had some traction with that, uh, but never to the point of actual um, sustained effort. Uh, I did the commerce route when I left to do my startup. And that was an extraordinary experience, built a strong team, uh, two of which the guys who work with me most closely, I'm still in regular contact with and we're really tight, uh, but we have not really found a commercial vehicle we could work on together yet. Uh, I'm hoping that will happen someday, uh, but it may not happen first. So the third route is the one of religion, which has been the most interesting and challenging. And um, yeah, I won't give you the whole story of it, but at the beginning of COVID, uh, two friends of mine that I'd been having similar conversations with, uh, one of them just said, Ernie, you got to start recording the stuff you're saying and put it on the internet. So the three of us started a YouTube, uh, actually, it's not quite a channel, it's a playlist uh, on a friend's, on his YouTube channel uh, called The Great Reset. And what was interesting was the three of us started this journey together. And then when I mentioned it to several friends, two or three other people joined for the first Zoom call. And what was more extraordinary is most of them came back. And so we're now on our third season of uh, seven episodes each, which is seven, seven, 14 plus three, so 17 episodes. And the cast of characters has changed a bit, but we've always had four or five people on the call and several people have invested quite a bit of time and energy into the vision. 
So of all the things I've tried, and basically every three months I'm trying something, you know, over the last, uh, um, you know, 19 years, uh, I've just, this is the way this works, right? You just, you just keep trying and trying again and refining and you try the same thing four or five different ways and it gets a little bit of traction, then it dies. Then you start over again with something different. And sometimes it's just a tweet. Sometimes it's a blog post. Sometimes it's a full-fledged project. Um, so anyway, this was the first thing I have found where I have sustained empathy, where people said, ah, yes, you get, it's not that they understand me, is that they feel like I understand them. I'm speaking to something in their hearts that resonates with them, that makes them feel more themselves. Does that make sense? It is this spirit, spirituality side. Yeah, this is a really good, yeah, it, 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 yeah the, 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 the initial phrasing was the future of Christianity. Um, but it, it started with, the first season was basically reinventing a Christian theology uh, in a more humane fashion. Um, or more from a position, uh, a more open-ended way. Traditional theology is very much backward-looking. Uh, how do we preserve the truths that have been handed down from the past? They're very much a scarcity mindset. We're trying to sort of flip it into say, okay, what do we mean to create a forward-looking Christian theology where we actually embrace discussions, disagreements? And it's a privilege we have, right? In the past, Christianity was really worried about survival, and that created a sort of bunker mentality, which is still sadly evident in many churches. Uh, but physical survival is not really our concern right now, not directly at any rate. And so we, this generation has the privilege of saying, okay, let's let go of all the things that we needed to survive the bunker mentality and see how to have a more forward-looking um, vision, not just going along with the culture, but that uh, the, the phrase that we use in that community is bringing the kingdom of God is how do we seek the kingdom of God in a way that brings heaven on earth, if you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Mm. Uh, so anyway, that's the, that was the first season. The second season was about education. Um, and the, the punchline of that was that education is actually the wrong model. Because education assumes that I have the answer and you need to be like me. And that was a useful strategy when uh, you had to fit into society and society knew what it was doing. Uh, neither of those are really true anymore. And so we need a different model. So the third season, which we began a few weeks ago, was, okay, what does that new model look like? And what's interesting, as we're hitting this inflection point uh, on this call, was like, okay, what do we do next? Enough thinking. What do we start doing is, is that just Tuesday, two days ago, on uh, Bastille Day, I pitched them on, we need to build a missional social network, very similar to our earlier conversations about IGWET and an alternative to Facebook. So uh, the goal is with this season in the next, uh, you know, three and a half weeks or whatever, to actually articulate a um, product, basically, or more precisely a platform that we can actually build that would actually make money that people could actually use that embodies the values that, uh, that this community, you know, has sort of gathered around and that you and I have been talking. So we're in this inflection point of shifting from talking to doing. And so I need to wrap up here. What I can do is I can send you some of the documents I'm preparing for that. 
Uh, we meet mm-hmm. Tuesdays at 1 p.m. on a Zoom call. You're welcome to jump in and participate on that. If you're interested, I can send you an invite. Um, it is a you know public forum. The whole point of mm-hmm. it is that everything we do is recorded publicly on the Internet so that people can see the struggles and the messiness and the confusion and the disagreements. Um, but um, I think after that call on Tuesday, I'll have a much clearer idea of whether that community is enrolled on the same journey you and I are and also some concrete steps of things to do. So that's kind of where we're at at this point. Um, I'm not sure exactly where you and I go next, uh, but this will give you some fodder of things to think about and we'll take it from there. Yeah. Yeah. My my own uh, little uh, uh, project, you know, is the, uh, Building humankind, and which is like an idealistic goal, mm-hmm. right? Where you know um, there's uh, there's just relationships with people and groups and communities that get things done without the current systems that we have. So, Right, but the thing is, you can't do it without any systems, right? With we discussed uh, before, is that the information overload problem becomes overwhelming. Right? Yeah. Even checklists and parliamentary procedure are systems, right? Which embody certain values. And yeah, but you can't just uh, say I, I want everyone to be virtuous. You have to actually have mm-hmm. something, accountability systems and whatever, right? Yes, uh, but the the core. Let's, let's put it this way. The core values of that uh, society, or society, is the uh, flipping of who has the power. Like right now, the power is in the hands of the wealthy, the politically co- connected. But in that society, the power is, and it, it is really in the individual. The individual it has the power, and then from there, communities, uh, you know, the individual might see some power to. Or or, or no, uh, aggregate their power with other people to um, create communities that are, you know, stronger than the corporations uh, that we have, even governments that we have, because all all these institutions are based on ideas that um, are not real, you know. Well, let's be fair. I mean, they, 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 they mean they, they they are. But it's important to note all those institutions grew. Because initially, somebody said something like what you're saying, and they jumped on board with that because they said, hey, let's not just be these chaotic, brutish people. Let's gather together and build something better that better represents us. And very few of those things were actually created deliberately with malicious intent. They actually thought they were doing the right thing. Yes. And so, but then, sorry, no, so yeah. yeah. But then things like you right? So that's one of the things that we talk about is how do you build a self-renewing system, which, you know, and that's why we started with theology and education and, and learning is like, how do you actually have the right values? And then how do you create systems that reinforce the right values and guard against the wrong ones? So anyway, I think there's, you know, just, you know, there's two roles that you could play on this would be really helpful. One is that if you feel like this is something that resonates with you, you could enroll in it and become part of the journey together, which is great. But an equally valuable role if you say, okay, I see what you're trying to do. I have some qualms about it. I'm not willing to sign on, but I'm willing to be a, um, 
a monitor. Like, I will watch what you are doing, and I will critique it. And that mm-hmm. is just as valuable as the person who signs on. Correct. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. I think that's a uh, – so hopefully I will have something for you to look at, you know, some today, some on Tuesday, and you can participate as deeply as you like. And then maybe our goal for next Thursday will be actually for you to have looked at some of it, and then we can react and argue about it. All right. All right? Yeah, thank okay. you, Ernest. Thank you, Ernest. Have a good week. You too. Okay, bye.